0: study of 1 Peter, and uh, we are trekking right along, and this is such a, a rich book and so encouraging uh, for our hearts um, as we um, even just consider uh, the, the parodies between Peter's original audience as kind of a, a scattered, dispersed, exiled group of believers all throughout these, uh, these regions that he mentions there in verse 1. And we kind of, uh, in many ways, uh, consider ourselves to be uh, something of exiles, um, aliens walking uh, in a land that is not ultimately our home. And so Peter's goal is to try to encourage these believers as they're walking with that hope of eternal glory before their eyes. and. Um, what does that hope look like? And what does the life of hope look like? And so we're really in the, in the midst of the—really, uh, Peter jumps right into the practical, uh, the practical parts of this book. And this is what makes uh, both Peter and John so interesting to interpret as we study their, their writings. And that is we are so accustomed to Paul, who wrote 13 books of the 27 in the New Testament— and Paul is very logical. He's, very, he's a very Greek writer. And so he gives you a, a nice split. He gives you a nice hinge upon which his books turn. And you can look at any book that Paul wrote and pretty much halfway through. You see he turns and he spends the first half of the book talking about what we might, what we might call the indicatives. He's given you a lot of information, a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, a lot of explanation of who God is, what God has done. And then he turns the corner and he goes, boom, right into... Uh, the application. And then the last half of the book is all just the the duties, the consequences, the things that we are to do in light of the the teaching of the the first half of the book. Peter and John are a little bit different. They weave it in. It's all together. It's blended together. Um, And so it becomes a little bit more difficult sometimes to pick it out. You can't... It's a lot harder to outline, right? You can't just say, okay, doctrine and duty like Paul. You've got to kind of weave through it. And so what Peter has done... Um, up to this point, really verses one through nine, um, I'd say really verses one through 12, he's dealt with um, the, the indicatives, right? The truths about who we are. We are born again. We are uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are sanctified uh, according to the work of the Spirit. We are called toward obedience. We've been sprinkled with his blood. Um, we, have, we have seen that we have a, 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 an inheritance that's reserved in heaven it, that we have the ability to be joyful in trials and that we have uh, seen the precious outcome of our faith, um, the, the tested faith that results in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Christ. We see that even though we, uh, we walk by faith and not by sight, we still love Christ who gave himself up for us. And all of these things, these are just true realities, blanket true realities. Then he turns a corner in verse 13 like we saw last week. Therefore, In other words, in light of what we've seen up to this point, how do we live? What do we do? How does our life actually look? And so we saw last week where, where Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so Peter has been up in, up in kind of the, the abstract clouds of doctrine and theology. He's been up here And now he drops down out of the heights of doctrine into boots on the ground. You're here. You're right now. Yes, we understand the hope that we look forward to. What do I do right now? How do I walk? How do I live? How do I approach this life in view of the future hope to which I look? And so obviously we see there that he calls the believers to to fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we like to think of that, a way to illustrate that is your eyes are always up and out, right? You're always looking towards that future. You're, you're, you're fixing your hope on what is to come rather than walking around, looking, oh man, I am in the, I am in the brambles, I am in the briars, I am in the thorns and the thistles of this life. What am I going to do? And what Peter calls you to do is say, look to the light at the end of the tunnel and walk that way. And do so in a way that is sober in spirit with a prepared and disciplined mind. And Peter is going to explicate that. He's really going to do that in three ways over the course of the next couple of weeks. And we're going to see tonight verses 14 and 16. We're going to see uh, really that, that to fix your hope on glory. And to prepare your minds for action. And to walk with a soberness of spirit. Tonight we are going to see that that means that we are to walk In holiness and that's going to be the theme of tonight and then in two weeks we'll look at the the theme of the fear of God that a prepared sober eyes fixed Christian who walks in this world walks in the fear of God and then finally they walk in the love of others and we're going to see that in three weeks and so what we see then, as we even talked about a couple of weeks ago, is Peter's continuing to develop this, what we might call a Christian chronology, a timeline of the Christian life. And you notice that at the beginning, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he starts with the babies, right? You've been born again. You've, you're have you a spiritual baby. And then now he expands that. He's like, okay, now we have taken the next step. You're not a baby, but you're still a child. And how does he address them there in verse 13, or excuse me, 14, as obedient Children And so as Peter continues, right, we can start tracing this growth, this development that as you grow as a Christian from a baby to a child to someone who is growing up into by the time you get to chapter chapter five into this kind of idea of Christian eldership. And we don't I I don't mean that in the sense of like the official biblical office in the church of an elder, right? Someone, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, all the different words you use for it, episcopos and presbyteros and all these words, but just an, an older, mature Christian, right? And we grow from being newborn babies to older, mature Christians, and Peter takes us on that journey. And so as I mentioned, these verses, as we will go over them in the next couple of weeks, really serve as an explanation of verse 13. How do, how do I live? What, is it, what can I do right now to walk with a prepared mind, with a sober spirit, with fixed eyes. How do I do that? Peter's going to explain that to us over the next couple of weeks. So for tonight, we want to draw our attention to this really quite basic and, and quite simple idea of Christian holiness. So let's, uh, if you haven't turned there already in First Peter, let's look at verses 14 through 16 as we consider this concept of Christian holiness holiness. Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So this is really a, a fairly simple sentence here. Here. Right? He gives you the, the sort of the baseline assumption right? as obedient children. And then as he moves on, he gives you the contrast. What are you not to do and then what are you to do? You are not to be conformed to former lusts, but you are to be like the Holy One who called you. Holy in all your conduct, holy in all your behavior. And then he gives the grounds for that. He gives the proof for that. What do I, how, how, do, I, how do I prove that? How does Peter prove that? He uses the text of scripture to prove to us that holiness ought to be of utmost importance and utmost centrality in the life of a saved Christian. Now you'll see on your outline there that I have intentionally phrased these outline points as Christian holiness and we'll talk a lot more about this as we go. But what I want to keep in the center of our minds is that Holiness can never be separated from Christ. Our holiness is, begins and ends, and everything in the middle as concerns our holiness comes from Christ. And he is our holiness. He has made us holy, and we walk then in that holiness. And so as we as we go through this as we continue to to see all these things, I want us to remember, holiness is not, holiness can never be separated from the Christian part of holiness. If we are to be holy, we are to be in Christ, and if we are to be in Christ, we are to be holy and we'll draw that out more as we continue. So let's take a look first at what I've called the identity of Christian holiness, the identity of Christian holiness. It's right there in the text, verse 14. The identity of Christian holiness is based in this concept of children. The identity of a holy person is that they are a child, and we'll obviously explicate out what that means, but we are a child of God. We are a child of our heavenly Father. And so by just using this phrase, as obedient children, Peter is already making some self-illusions. He's referencing back to some things that he's already mentioned. And really, he makes three assumptions by saying, "As obedient children." Okay, he's not gonna—he doesn't really give us any explanation. Well, what is obedient children? What does this mean? He he, just—he assumes you are an obedient child. So, assumption number one is that we've already gotten through verse two. We've already—or excuse me, verse three. We've already been born again. We've already gotten through verse two. We've already been chosen. We've been—we're in the process of being sanctified. We're obeying Christ. We've been born again. We're already in that journey. We're on the path. We're already in Christ and we're walking in this way. And so assumption number one then is that we are indeed children. Peter operates according to that assumption. If you are a child of God, wah, 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 stop. Go back to verse three and figure out what it means to be born again. That's where you've got to start. Then, once you've been born again, Now we're on that path. Now we're in that life. We're walking this way. So that's assumption number one. We're children. And this comes from verse two. He invokes the foreknowledge of God the Father. The implication is if God is our Father, then we, by necessary implication, are his children. Assumption number two, then, is that children are obedient, as obedient children Peter again in verse 2 describes what we might call in Greek the telos, the end, the final goal. What is the final goal of our calling? What is the final goal of our new birth? It is to, what does verse 2 say? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Christ. So literally he says this, you reside as aliens and you are chosen to obey Christ. The reason that you are chosen Before the foundation of the world, the reason that you are called, the reason that you are saved, the end goal is that you would obey Jesus Christ. So he assumes that we're obedient and he assumes that we're children together. He assumes that we are obedient children. We're children of the Father and we obey Christ. And then assumption number three is not not tied directly uh, into, into verse 14 here, but it's implicit based on the other connections. What does Peter say In verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What does sanctifying mean? It simply means to make holy. So the one who is actually accomplishing that work in our lives, that work of holiness, that work of obedience, is the work of the Holy Spirit. The assumption is this. The end goal of obedience to the Son is empowered, or you could even say fueled, by the sanctification of the Son of the spirit. So right off the bat then, we would affirm if we are to live lives of Christian holiness, we must ground that holiness in the triune nature of God. So we always we we, we often talk about, well, wow, man, the Trinity. Does the, trinity even, the word trinity doesn't even exist in the Bible. Should we be having this conversation? Should we be talking about the trinity? And I, and, 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 and it's like, come on, it's not in the Bible. What are the practical implications? Right? I'm a, I'm a Christian pragmatist. I'm saying this, right? I'm playing devil's advocate. What's the, what's the deal with, with, with the trinity and all this other practical implications? The practical implications are if you are to actually accomplish your goal as a Christian, the reason that God leaves us here on earth, to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ before a watching world, That's not just something that deals with your relationship with Jesus. That's not just something that deals with your relationship with God the Father. That's not just something that deals with your relationship with the Holy Spirit. But all three come together, and in our relation with the triune God, only out of that understanding can we walk in true Christian holiness. That's at least one reason. I could name a dozen if I had to. But that's at least one reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is important practically. It is the foundation of our holiness. We have to understand the Trinity if we are to understand our holiness. And then Peter is alluding to a couple of things here by using this phrase, obedient children. Again, the assumption is that it just, just purely, purely based on just the, the general natural concept of children is that children in a perfect world are, in an imperfect world at least, should be obedient to their parents, obedient to their, in this case, to their heavenly father. And so, by this, Peter is alluding to other teachings in the Bible where the only, the only direct address to children in the New Testament is, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. It's like one of the earliest things I ever memorized as a kid. Didn't do much, if you want to ask my parents, as, as a small, rebellious, and disobedient child, but that's the command, right? Children are, are presumed to be obedient. And really, by then making this assumption, Peter is actually alluding to the, to the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And there's not necessarily like a linguistic equivalent here, um, but the idea is the same, right? What is the commandment? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And this idea of obedience is within the idea of honor, right? If you're going to honor your parents, as a child, you're going to obey them. You're going to do what they tell you, obviously under the assumption that they are instructing you and training you and raising you up in the way that you should go in, in righteousness and in godliness. And really what Peter's trying to do here is teach us something about our relationship to God in the context of our relationship to our own parents. Again, assuming that we're raised by, by godly parents who are taking these things seriously. So I know for me, this is a potent illustration because my parents loved the Lord and tried to raise us according to the principles of God's word. And So I go, okay, my, my relationship with my earthly parents is a small, tiny, shadowy reflection of my relationship with my heavenly father, and that needs to be a relationship of honor and obedience. And so the foundation then of holiness is to understand that we relate to God as our Father and therefore we ought to honor Him. We ought to obey Him. And then there's another sort of implicit assumption here for Peter. And that is that the law out of which this this command to children comes is still relevant for the New Covenant believer, we'll talk about this more, but uh, this is a, a critical but often misaligned, a, a critical but often maligned truth of the New Testament. We affirm beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are saved by grace and grace alone. We rest in the grace of God. We we rest in His mercy. That there is not anything that we can do to earn our own salvation by our holiness or by anything else. But that does not mean that once we have the spirit of God dwelling by grace in us, that we are not compelled by that same spirit to walk according to the principles that God has laid out in his word. This was Paul's concern in writing Romans 6. In light of the grace that was poured out in Romans 5, Paul urges the believers in Rome with all strength that he could possibly muster to walk not in cheap grace, but to walk in humble, grace-fueled obedience. Tracy?
1: So we have to humble ourselves because we're sinners. We have to practice the holiness as close as we can and be as close to holiness as we should.
0: Yes, but you missed the central point. The central point is you humble yourself. Then you rely on Christ and you rely on His holiness and His righteousness. And then... You walk in holiness, and you do. Really, that's the, that's the way it works. You do the best you can to walk in humble obedience and humble holiness before God. So I, I hesitate to say, oh, try the best you can, because that's kind of makes me think of this pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type Christianity. And I want to emphasize as much as I can that we rely on the grace of Christ, on the work of the Holy Spirit, to walk in holiness. But that doesn't mean that we just you know, go, all right. Jesus, where are you? Holy Spirit, where are you? Come make me holy. I'm ready. I'm waiting. No, you have to get up and you have to take the steps. You've got you've to walk in it. Right? So.
1: I'm, I'm sorry. Yes. So Peter's saying that we we can be holy on earth?
0: Yes. He's not just saying that we can. He's saying that we must or be holy on earth.
1: So when we following Jesus' teachings and uh, living by the rule of God, that... Basically, we can become holy, even though we are sinners.
0: Yeah, there, there's two things. There's two things that we have to understand, um, and give you three Ps. You can write this down: positional holiness, progressive holiness, progressive. and perfect holiness. You heard me right. I said progressive, progressive. holiness. Yeah, it's not a swear word. Explain. Progress- <laughs> positional <laughs> holiness. <laughs> Positional holiness is the holiness that we receive upon our justification, upon that moment when we receive Christ. In receiving Christ, we receive His perfect holiness. Christ was perfectly holy, perfectly pure during His life on earth. When we receive Christ, we receive that we are positionally holy. We're position. Ron.
1: Yeah, because the position is that we are in Christ. Yes,
0: our position is now no longer our position is now no longer in Adam, our position is now in Christ. That's positional so holiness. The is
1: falling into his, own, his
0: arms. Yes, exactly. Our That's holiness his comfort Exactly. Us. Exactly. We are our comfort is that we have received him and we rest in him, but there's number 2, progressive holiness. What do I mean by that? Every day as a Christian, we make progress. In holiness, we put the old man to death and we walk in the newness of life that God has given us. Now, I say progressive because it's always progress, but not, what was my third P? Perfection. Perfect holiness is what we achieve when we receive our new bodies, our glorified bodies, and we're in the new heavens and the new earth, and sin and pain and death are all gone, and we are now perfectly holy. So when we receive Christ, positional holiness, our position moves from being in Adam to being in Christ. We receive Christ's holiness. Progressive holiness is the progress that we make as Christians. The walk that we walk in holiness as we move forward every day, we get one step closer to heaven, right? And then once we finally get to heaven, then we receive that perfect holiness. I'm glad holiness. You
1: that word progressive.
0: No, I'm glad it's to a great really word. I'm you this whole thing because I'm sometimes feeling I'm just not, not enough. I'm never going to be enough. It's just so you won't.
1: Hard. No, that's true. But do, you make, do, but do
0: you make progress?
1: I do make progress, but it's much nicer to knowing that I'm in a holy way mm-hmm. doing progress instead yeah. of just trying yeah. try to catch up or yeah. learn something yeah. constantly, which I'm Yeah,
0: and I'll give you, once we get to the end, I'll give you some practical helps on this idea of walking in holiness. Um, so as we so as we see here, right? Peter affirms, right, that we are that we are obedient children, right, and that, and that that standard of obedience is the law of Moses. And now I already mentioned this; I'm going to mention it again. We have to remember Peter's chronology. The holiness is not what saves us. Christ, in His work, in His life, and His death, and in His resurrection, is what saves us. We receive that by faith. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to his cross I cling, right? Only after we have received, as we said, the positional holiness, can we ever walk in progressive holiness. And so I don't want us to hear here, oh, this is legalism, right? This is me saving myself by my own holiness and by my own good works. No, you walk in holiness because you've been saved for holiness. So we'll keep moving through this as we go along. We'll keep seeing some of these things come out as we move through this verse. But for now, let's keep this in mind. Sum it up. Peter's assumption is that as God's children, we are obedient to Christ in the power of his spirit according to the sovereign call and working so we have of to, God the we Father.
1: think Christ-like.
0: Yes. Yes. I don't steal the end of my sermon, Tracy, okay? But yes, that's the gist of it. Holiness is holiness equals Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness equals holiness. And our goal, right, is to follow him. What is it? What does it mean? What, what, is, what is Jesus' first call to his disciples? Get up and follow me.
1: So you want to hit that pole
0: I mean you want to, you're not ever going to hit it this side of heaven, but you, you want to, to aim there. To you want to aim there. Let's continue. The nonconformity. Of Christian holiness. We've seen the the identity of Christian holiness, the nonconformity of Christian holiness. We've established the identity, you're an obedient child now. Peter is going to encourage nonconformity. What does that mean? This is not Alyssa Jane Carg's nonconformity of the 60s and 70s, which dictated that boys should have long hair, girls should have short hair, everyone should wear sandals, but not socks. And you should tie and your tie should always clash. With your shirt. That's Alyssa Jane Carg's nonconformity of the 60s and 70s. That is not what Peter is encouraging here, despite the fact that many people think that that's what he's encouraging. We're going to talk more about this as we move along. Peter's idea here is biblical nonconformity. And what Peter means by it specifically is that you should not be conformed, not to some stuff out in the world and not to whatever you see on TV. That's not Peter's primary concern. Peter's primary concern is that you would not be conformed to what? The former lusts, which were yours in your Ignorance. Let's break this down. The command is to not conform. It's the idea of not making yourself into the image of something. And and when we think of conforming in a physical sense, maybe you think of something like a plaster mold where you pour a substance in, you break off the plaster, and you have a perfectly molded image. Maybe you think of die casting. As a kid, you have Hot Wheels cars. Those are die cast cars. And what is it? You just pour a bunch of molten aluminum into a mold, and out comes a car, and you paint it, and, and there you have it. Printing press type aircraft parts are made the same way. You pour it into a mold and it comes out and it, and it looks the way that it's supposed to. It is a perfect copy. It is conformed. That's the idea here. You might think of social conformity. I'm going to do something because this, I, this, this guy does it. If you're, if you're under the age of uh, 22... You're like, I saw this on TikTok, so I've got to go do this, okay? I saw this on YouTube, so I've got to go do this. I saw this on Instagram, so I'm going to go do this. That's social conformity. But Peter is commanding here, or I should say social social conformity, social nonconformity. Peter is commanding these scattered believers to not conform. He's encouraging them then to break free from the mold, shatter it as it were. And, and, and what is the mold that they're to break? They're not to conform. What are they not to conform to? former lust. What does Peter mean by this? The word translated here, lust, is epithemeo, and it carries the idea of a strong or passionate desire, right? Something that you want more than anything else in the world. It can be both a positive and negative thing, and in the Bible, it's used in a positive and negative way. It can be translated like, like longing, right? I desire for this. I I, I want this very badly. I long For it, And that's the way that it was used by Christ himself in Luke 22 when he says that he longs to eat this Passover with his disciples. Could also be in the New Testament translated a lot more negatively than long. It could be translated covet. Covet in the New Testament quotes the 10th commandment a couple of times and uses that same word there to translate covet. Contextually then, in contrast with Peter's next command for what we are to conform to, we can understand... That this lust, this strong and passionate desire, you could even say this longing is for anything that is in opposition to holiness. The contrast, they, they oppose each other. And so what Peter is saying is don't conform yourself to those passions which are in opposition to holiness. So then what are these these passionate desires, these lusts which oppose God and His holiness? First, Peter describes them as Former, their former lusts there in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the former lusts. These are not lusts, desires, passionate longings that are associated with our current state of salvation in Jesus Christ. These are the things that marked your life before Christ. Pre-new birth, before you were generated, before you were regenerated, before you believed, before you repented of these things. Now these lusts no longer bind your life. As as Paul says in Romans 6 and Romans 7, we are free. We are set free from the old master of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness in Christ. We have been freed from that darkness, and we now walk in the light of Christ. Secondly, not only are they former, but they are ignorant ignorant lust this word is used elsewhere in the new testament to describe a kind of willful turning away from the things of god and we even think about that right now like oh this guy is making a lot of noise this guy's being a problem so i'm going to what ignore him right that's the idea here it's ignorant lust it was things that you were actively chasing after when you were saying i don't want anything to do with god god's here i'm saying i'm ignoring god And I'm chasing after these lusts in my ignorance. So in all of this, then Peter is instructing the scattered believers to not be conformed to these things. He's saying, break out of that mold. Break out of those things that used to mark you before you were in Christ. You don't walk under that power anymore. You walk in newness of life given to you by Christ through his spirit. You walk in his freedom. Peter is then urging Christian non-conformity. What does this look like? The life of the Christian does not look like the life of the non-Christian. The Christian does not simply follow the crowd and allow them to be carried along by whatever flavor of the day philosophy is floating around on the TV or on the internet or in the newspapers.
1: Is that mob mentality?
0: Yeah, that, yeah, I would call it conformity. That's conformity. But we need to be careful here. Christianity and Christian nonconformity is not simply looking at the world and doing those things which are opposite of the world. Listen to the words of R.C. Sproul in his magnificent book, The Holiness of God. He says this, It is a tragedy that the matter of nonconformity has been treated by Christians at such a shallow level. The simplistic way of not conforming is to see what is in style in our culture and then do the opposite. If short hair is in vogue, then the non-conformist wears long hair. If going to the movies is popular, then Christians avoid the movies as worldly. The extreme case of this may be seen in groups that refuse to wear certain clothes or refuse to use electricity because such things, too, are worldly. Worldly. A superficial style of nonconformity is the classic Pharisaical trap. The kingdom of God is not about clothes or movies or dancing or card games. The concern of God is not focused on what we eat or drink. The call of nonconformity is a call to a deeper level of righteousness that goes beyond mere externals. When piety is defined exclusively in terms of externals, the whole point of Peter's teaching has been lost. The Christian nonconformist takes a good, hard look at those desires and passions and lusts that marked their former life and says this, I am a new creation in Christ. That is not me anymore. Therefore, I will not conform with that way of life. And therefore, then the church ought to be full of formers. Former hotheads and angry people, former sluggards, former gluttons, former idle babblers, former alcoholics, former fornicators, former adulterers, former murderers, former addicts, former gossipers. The church is full of formers. That was who I was before, but now I am a new creation in Christ. Peter's exhortation then is to leave the past in the past. The temptation is there. Peter wouldn't write this if it wasn't, but he can't be more clear. Consider your identity. Consider that you were elected and chosen by God for the purpose of obedience to Christ. Empowered by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and then allow that to drive you to Christian non-conformity excuse me, Christian non-conformity.
1: So when God told people not to look back, his wife ended up looking back, does not that say move forward and don't think about all that other old stuff that you were really doing before?
0: Maybe, that's maybe a slight stretch, but I mean, yeah, that's, Lot's wife was destroyed because she she couldn't quite let go of what God was casting judgment down upon. So, I mean, it might be a stretch, but you're not outside the ballpark. You're not outside the ballpark. I got one. Christian nonconformity is to be contrasted with Christian conformity, which leads us to our next point. Peter is not merely peddling nonconformity for its own sake because he immediately follows that exhortation up with its contrasted twin. Be holy like your father is holy. Verse 15, in all your behavior. It's a simple statement. Be holy. Be holy like your Father in heaven is holy. It's a simple statement. Yet it sits in our souls with a heavy profundity. One of my favorite authors, former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, wrote in his book Extreme Ownership about tasks that are simple but not easy the idea of holiness is simple we can wrap our minds around it we can see that it means to be separate to be pure to not look like the world and yet in practice when we actually when it comes to the time to actually execute the mission of be holy
1: so you're talking about
0: John it's simple but it's not easy uh no i'm talking about the guy that wrote the book and you got to let me finish this lesson okay, or so are we going to be here till midnight Godly Christian holiness may be the chief of the simple but not easy tasks. And yet Peter nevertheless implores his readers to take it up as a critical part of what it means to prepare your mind for action and fix your hope on Christ. We should make a few observations here. Peter first exhorts us to imitate God in our holiness. What does he say? Be like the Holy One who called you. Direct reference back to verse two, we are to be holy because of the holiness that is found in God. If we are his children, we ought to reflect his image. We ought to reflect his likeness. As physical earthly children reflect the characteristics of their physical earthly father, so also spiritual children ought to reflect the characteristics of their heavenly father. Now, we hear the word holiness all the time, and we've talked about holiness for quite some time up to this point, about 39 minutes But I think it's important right now to nail down what do we actually mean when we say holy? What do we actually mean when we talk about the holiness of God? I'll appeal again to R.C. Sproul when he says this. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is above us and he is beyond us to a point that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other to be different in a special way. He continues. Where does purity come in? We are so accustomed in our world to equating holiness with purity or ethical perfection that we look for the idea when the word holy appears. When things are made holy, when they are consecrated, they are set apart unto purity. They are to be used in a pure way. They are to reflect purity as well as simple separateness. Purity is not excluded from the idea of the holy. It is contained within it. But the point we must remember is that the idea of the holy is never exhausted by the idea of purity. It includes purity, but it is much more than that. It is purity and transcendence. It is a transcendent purity. That's R.C. Sproul. I think it's important for us to realize then as Christians that our holiness is not arbitrary. It's not based on an abstract standard, but rather it is an imago reflection of our own character as image bearers and as children of God. Back to R.C. Sproul. The saints of scripture were called saints not because they were already pure but because they were people who were set apart and called to purity. The word holy has the same two meanings when applied to people as it has when it is applied to God. We recall that when the word holy is used to describe God, it not only calls attention to which he is to that sense in which he is different or apart from us, but it also calls attention to his absolute Purity. So then, to be holy like our Father is holy, like the one who called us is holy, means that we are to be set apart from all that is around us. And also that we are to be morally and ethically pure, without stain or blemish or spot, above reproach in all things. And then for Peter, this holiness in verse 15 is specifically related to behavior. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. It's important here to note a parallel passage from the Apostle Paul. It's the only other place in the entire Bible where the phrase do not be conformed is used. It's from Romans twelve two, where Paul writes this. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So for Peter and for Paul, the call is the same. Do not conform and the contrast is the same. Do, do be transformed into godly holiness. Ron. Okay.
1: should be called children of God, that's our position, mm-hmm. beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed when we shall be, you know, because we're in that progressive mm-hmm. age, but we know that when he is revealed, mm-hmm. we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that's when we reach that perfection, mm-hmm. and then the next verse says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Mm-hmm. It does use the word purity here mm-hmm. as what our actions
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the behavior of the Christian then is to be marked by this moral and ethical purity. And you can see, if you want to, I mean, you eliminate Peter and Paul and John. That's most of the writers of the New Testament. The three big writers in the New Testament are in complete unison on this. That the Christian is to walk in holiness and in purity. And then for Paul here in Romans 12, the vehicle of the transformation, the transformation from old conformity to the world, old conformity to lust and a new conformity, uh, really a a conformity that is really a transformity. It's not a word. I just made it up. The vehicle is mental renewal by the renewing of your minds, right? Right. So a simple way to think about this is Paul exhorts us in Philippians 4. If you want to push the wickedness of the old life out of your mind and you want to fill it with holiness, Philippians 4.8, fill it with what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is of good repute. If there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If you want to push the former ways out and bring the transformed ways in, you do it by filling your mind With what is good, what is true, what is right, what is lovely, what is beautiful. And where do you start with that? You start right here. Saturate your mind in the word of God. Saturate your mind in truth about God. Look with with eyes wide open at the holiness and the majesty of God as it is revealed in this book. And like Moses, you will come down from that mountain glowing. Glowing. And that's, the, re- that's, a, that's a, the greatest picture that we have, and Paul uses it in the New Testament, that when we behold the glory of God, you can't walk away from that unchanged. When you behold God and his holiness and you fill your mind and your heart with the truth about God, you walk away changed. You walk away just a little bit every day more like him. And that's why being in this book and meditating on these words and seeing God for all the beauty and all the glory that he contains in this book is critical for the Christian life, absolutely critical. You have to behold holiness if you want to walk in it. Reason for Christian holiness. I'm just jumping right to my points here because got, we got 15 minutes. I got a lot to cover. Peter gives a fairly straightforward reason for his exhortation God Himself has commanded holiness. Peter appeals, as he has already up to this point, and how all the New Testament authors do at every point. They appeal to the Old Testament. They appeal to how God revealed himself in the sacred scriptures to prove their point for the new covenant people of God. He quotes from Leviticus 14. This refrain is repeated throughout the Pentateuch. You shall be holy for I am holy. This was the whole purpose of the people of Israel. If you were with us in our Deuteronomy study, you saw that time and time again, God gives these commands to the people of Israel so that they might demonstrate that they are different. They are separate from the world around them. They are separate from the pagan nations. And Peter here then observes a singularity, a thread between ancient Israel and the church here at West Hills in 2022. Israel was called to be holy. We are called to be holy, both as God is holy like israel we are called to be separate from the surrounding nations and reflect like a mirror the majestic holiness of god we walk differently because we worship differently our god is not like their god and so our lives must not be like their lives this was the calling upon historical Israel, and this is the calling upon eschatological Israel. Be holy, for your God is holy. Be separate, for your God is separate. And be pure, because your God is pure. Now, I would be remiss, then, having extolled holiness and urged holiness and reflected upon the holiness of God as it impacts our lives that we didn't talk for a few minutes about some practical things. What does this actually look like? How can we walk in this today? I confess, in case you hadn't figured it out, I know I have facial hair, okay? But I am a young man, okay? And therefore, I am without an extensive breadth of experiential authority to speak on this matter. So I'm going to rely for the remainder of our time on someone who has been immensely helpful to me as I seek to understand practically what holiness looks like. Some of you may know where I'm going with this. The helper that I have recruited to assist us tonight as we look at these things is J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop of the 19th century, described as a man of granite with the heart of a child. Bold as a lion for the word of God and the gospel and lauded by Martin Lloyd-Jones himself, the great preacher, as a famed, outstanding, and beloved exponent of the Christian faith. And Ryle's most well-known and most well-loved book is simply called Holiness. I would commend the entire book to you tonight, um, but I would like to share a few thoughts of wisdom from Bishop Ryle regarding practical holiness. Holiness in the life of a believer. We're gonna move quickly through this. There's a lot of points here. And if you can just grab onto one or two of them as we go, I promise you it will reap fruit in your life and I trust that you will be encouraged by Bishop Ryle as he encourages us tonight. He says this, this is in the opening of the book, what then is true practical holiness? It is a hard question to answer. I do not mean that there is any want of scriptural matter on the subject, but I fear lest I should give a defective view of holiness and not say all that ought to be said, or lest I should say things about it that ought not to be said, and so do harm. Therefore, I fear. Let me, however, try to draw a picture of holiness that we may see it clearly before the eyes of our minds. Only let it never be forgotten when I have said all, that my account is but a poor and imperfect outline at the best. It's J.C. Ryle. I stand in a similar sort of petrified humility as we approach this topic as it comes to bear on our lives tonight. But nevertheless, I believe it is valuable to see what we might call a, a varied and vital and vibrant life of holiness ought to look like in the life of a believer. So I'm gonna blast through these. Ryle gives 12 marks Of a holy person a holy person is in the habit of being of one mind with God that is agreeing with God as he has revealed himself in scripture hating what God hates loving what God loves measuring everything by the standard of his word a holy person is Bible founded Bible focused and Bible fervent he is of one mind with God A holy person will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. In other words, a holy person has a hearty desire to act in accordance with the revealed will of God. He fears displeasing God more greatly than he fears displeasing the world and loves all the ways of God, even as the psalmist of Psalm 119 loves the ways of God. Number three, a holy person will strive to be like Christ. A holy person will strive to be like Christ. This not only entails living the life of faith in him, drawing from him peace and strength, but will labor to have the mind of Christ and be brought into, here's that word again, greater conformity with him. What's that? You said that earlier. Yeah, I did. It's because I have rile on the brain. (laughs) I read like half of this book this week. It's incredible. Ryle says this, happy is he who has learned to make Christ his all, both for salvation and for example. Much time would be saved and much sin prevented if men and women would oftener ask themselves the question, what would Christ have said and done if he were in my place? Number four, a holy person will follow after meekness. The holy person seeks to suffer long in gentleness, patience. Kind-temperedness, bearing with much and forbearing much. Number five, a holy person will follow after temperance and self-denial. The holy person will mortify his flesh with its desires, restrain his carnal inclinations, and curb his passions. Number six, a holy person will follow after love and brotherly kindness. He does to others as he would have others do unto him and speaks to them as he would have them speak to him. He is full of affection toward his brothers and sisters and abhors slander, lying, backbiting, cheating, dishonesty, and unfair dealings. Number seven, a holy person will follow after a spirit of mercy and benevolence toward others. He is not simply content to do no harm but actively seeks after the good of others and the good of his city. He strives to be useful, spending and being spent for the sake of others. Number eight, a holy person will follow after purity of heart. He avoids all filthiness and uncleanness and anything that might draw him into it. Number nine, a holy person will follow after the fear of God the holy person does not have the fear of a slave, of being beaten by his master, but has the fear of a child who wishes to live more and more as if he were always before his father's face because of his great love for him. Number 10, a holy person will follow after humility. His desire will always be to esteem others more highly than himself. Number 11, a holy person will follow after faithfulness in all his duties and in all his relationships. He does whatever he does heartily as unto the Lord. He aims at doing everything well, striving to be a good husband or she a good wife, good parents and good children, good neighbors and friends, good in private and in public, good at work and at play. Finally, number 12, the holy person follows after spiritual mindedness. His affections will be set entirely on things above, with his eyes fixed on the hope of glory. He lives as one who is laying up treasure in heaven, simply passing through this world on his way home. His chief delight will be in communion with God, in prayer, in the word and in the assembly of God's people. Why are we to be holy? Ryle gives eight reasons. I'll cruise through them. Like we've seen tonight, number one, we are to be holy because the voice of God in Scripture expressly commands it. That's what we saw tonight. We are to be holy for This is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. 1 Corinthians 5, because of Christ's death we live, and because we live, we live for him. Ephesians 5, Christ's love and sacrifice impels his church to holiness and purity. Titus 2, Christ redeems us, purifies us, and draws us to himself so that we might be zealous for good works. Ryle says this, how can those saved from the guilt of sin not also be saved from its dominion? How can those saved from the penalty of sin not also be saved from its power? Number three, we are to be holy because this is sound evidence that we have saving faith in Christ. Ryle quotes a famous confession of faith when he says, Although good works cannot put away sins, good works cannot endure the severity of God's judgment, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ. And do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith insomuch much that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree is discerned by its fruits. We must be holy because this is the proof that we love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Take it from the mouth of our Lord himself in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We must be holy, number five, because this is sound evidence that we are true children of God. Again, as we saw tonight. Ryle strikes our hearts here. He says this, If men have no likeness to the Father in heaven, it is vain to talk of their being his sons. And then to prove his point, he quotes William Gurnall, that 17th century Puritan, in his work, The Christian in Complete Armor. Gurnall says this: Say not that thou hast royal blood running in thy veins, and that thou art begotten of God, except thou canst prove thy pedigree by this heroic spirit to dare to be holy, in spite of men and devils. You can't say that you are a child of the King without taking up your armor and going to war against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Number six, we must be holy because this is the most likely way to do good to others. You may talk to persons, says Ryle, about the doctrines of the gospel, and few will listen and still fewer will understand, but your life is an argument that none can escape. There is a meaning about holiness which not even the most unlearned can help taking in. They may not understand justification but they can understand love. Number seven, we must be holy because our present comfort much depends on it. Ryle says, we cannot be too often reminded of this. We are sadly apt to forget that there is a close connection between sin and sorrow and holiness and happiness. God has so wisely ordered it that our well-being and our well-doing are linked together. He has mercifully provided that even in this world, it is in our interest to be holy. Finally, we must be holy because without holiness on earth, we shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. Holiness indeed is written on everything in heaven. Think that, think you that such a person would delight to meet David and Paul and John after a life spent doing the very things that they spoke against. Would this man take sweet counsel with them and find that he and they had much in common? Think you above all that he would rejoice to meet Jesus, the crucified one, face to face after holding so tightly to those sins for which he died? Ryle pauses and asks two questions Are you holy?
1: Just as health is essential to our physical life because it's how we eat, we eat properly, maybe exercise. In the same way, then holiness would be essential to our spiritual life. If we, and holiness can also mean separation from. We separate from the things of this world and separate unto all those points you gave, mm-hmm. which are the things that
0: God mm-hmm. would be interested. Yeah, holiness is directly equated to spiritual health. I'll offer some closing words of encouragement, and it is these words of encouragement with which I will close this evening. He asks his second question, has your heart been pricked tonight by a conviction of holiness? Do you desire to be holy as God your Father is holy? If so, and you wonder where to start, let me exhort you with all the power and encouragement I can. Begin with Christ. You will make no progress in holiness without first fleeing to the cross, to the tomb, and to the throne. He is the root and beginning of all holiness. And the way to holiness is to receive him by faith and be joined in union with him in all his holiness. So then, encouragement number two, begin with Christ number one. Number two, go to Christ. Fly to him, flee to him for your holiness. In the words of the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. No brick is laid in the foundation of our holiness and sanctification until we go to Christ not once, not when I raised my hand at a prayer tent meeting, not when I came forward for an altar call, not when I had a Damascus Road moment when I had a car accident, but every single day I urge you in the words of Bishop Ryle, go to Christ daily, every day fly to him for it is in him that you find your holiness. Having begun with him and having now daily committed ourselves to going to him for holiness, then we must abide in Christ for holiness. A growing, thriving Christian comes to Christ as the physician who keeps him well, as the bread of life who keeps him fed, and as the living water who quenches his thirst. Be not only rooted in him, but be built up in him. Christ is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our holiness. If you desire to be like the Holy One who called you in all your behavior, if you are to be holy as He is holy, find your holiness in Jesus Christ alone. Father, help us. This is a high calling to walk as holy men and women in a world that is filled with corruption. We look even tonight to our own hearts and to our own souls and we see the corruption and the filth that even still as those who are positionally holy resides there. Help us to remove, to flush out the remains of our former self. Help us not be conformed To our former lusts which were ours in ignorance. But help us be conformed and transformed into a pure vision of you. May we be holy as you are holy. May we follow Christ in that. May we seek after all our days Christ likeness. May every day we strive and desire to make progress toward the holiness of Christ. May we rest in him. May we abide in him. May we go to him every single day to receive holiness. And then may we walk in that as faithful servants of you, our Father. We rely now on the sanctifying work of the Spirit to work these things out with us with fear and with trembling. Lord, we come before you. Help us to walk every day as though we were before your face, reflecting your holiness even as a mirror. We can't do this apart from your help. We ask now that because you have called us to be holy, you will enable us and empower us to be holy. We trust that promise. We love you, Father. It's in the name of Christ the Son that we pray. Amen.
1: Man, 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 that was spectacular. Mm-hmm. I have an
0: announcement. What? At the beginning of the lecture, A party? the mm-hmm. girl's mother wrote to say there is no cancer. Oh yeah. Oh, amen. Amen. Let there be no question Amen. Amongst, the half, amongst the two dozen of us or so in the room that God answers prayer. I have one quick announcement to make. Next Thursday, if you show up here, no, there won't be anyone here. It'll be crickets. It'll be ghost town. Um, some of our leadership is going out of town, and some others of our leadership are going to a conference. So we are off next week, but we will be picking it right back up where we left off. That will be the following Thursday. Um, so uh, I would encourage you to be with us then as we continue in First Peter, uh, exploring the uh, implications of the fear of God. I encourage you to join us. You can hang out here as long as you like, but you might have to turn off the lights and close the doors when you leave. <laughs>